Coming to you live from a castle high in the Bavarian Alps, it's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode 104, Daily Vol Report. In this episode, we have yet another monster movie review and RPG prompts. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, gentle listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Doc Cross. I hope everyone has had a good week since our last little get-together. I have. I am, of course, recording this way early. It is not, in fact, October. It is, in fact, September 21st. And I'm getting ahead of myself on podcasts because there'll be the holiday season coming up. And even though I don't do the holiday season, there are birthdays and all sorts of things going on. So it's good to get ahead on things. Also, I'm lazy, so I'm trying to get my podcast segments recorded in advance, the ones that I use to uh, make up the podcast here. However, I am recording this live because we're doing another monster movie review, and I really didn't feel like recording those way in advance. And one thing I don't want to do way in advance or late or forget about doing at all is thanking my patrons over on Patreon, who are wonderful, wonderful folks and who send me money and allow me to do, well, this podcast, among other things. So thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, James. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, David. And thank you, Peter. You guys are great. I hope you love the show. I hope you enjoy these in-depth looks at seminal monster movies, because we're about to start one. In just a moment. And as I said just a few moments ago, before I had to shut off the microphone and have a coughing fit, because I think a piece of dog hair went down my throat, we are doing the seminal monster movies of the 1930s and the early 40s. We are talking about the ones that really made a big difference. And this time, we are talking about Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein is a 1931 American pre-code science fiction horror film directed by James Whale, produced by Carl Lemel Jr., and adapted from a 1927 play by Peggy Webling, which in turn was based on Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. The Webling play was adapted by John L. Balderston and the screenplay written by Francis Edward Farago and Garrett Fort, with uncredited contributions from Robert Lurie and John Russell. Now, before I go into the plot of the movie and all this, which you probably already know, but we'll talk a little bit about it, we're talking about movies that are real game changers and were really powerful movies that have echoed down through almost an entire century now. And the first one we talked about was Dracula, and now we're talking about Frankenstein. And you really can't understate the effect of this movie on pop culture. I think if we look around, we all have seen dozens and dozens of Frankenstein parodies, Frankenstein comic books. There was a cartoon show years and years and years ago when I was a kid. Um, So... Frankenstein is just like Dracula all over our culture. And this is the movie 
that started it all. So Frankenstein stars Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, an obsessed scientist who digs up corpses with his assistant in order to assemble a living being from body parts. And yes, this was the first movie where this was done. I'm going to pause here for a moment and point out that this is not the first version of Frankenstein to make it to the silver screen. The original movie version of Frankenstein was made by the Edison Company. I don't know the year right off the top of my head. I know it starred Charles Ogle as the monster. I think it ran, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes tops. And I have seen it. It was thought lost, and then it was found and restored. And it's way different from the story we are all familiar with, with Colin Clive and Boris Karloff. So, let's go back to what I was talking about. The resulting creature that Frankenstein puts together from sewing those body parts together is often known as Frankenstein Monster, although in colloquial terms it's called Frankenstein most of the time. And it is portrayed in the movie by Boris Karloff. And the makeup for the monster was provided by Jack Pierce, who is incredibly famous for doing makeup, and rightly so. And alongside Clive and Karloff, the film's cast also include includes May Clark, John Bowles, Dwight Fry, who played Renfield in Dracula, and Edward Van Sloan. The movie was, of course, produced and distributed by Universal Pictures, and the film was a commercial success upon its release and was generally very well received by both critics and audiences. It spawned a number of sequels and spin-offs, which we'll talk about later, which are just incredible. It also had a significant impact on popular culture with the imagery of a maniacal mad scientist with a subservient hunchbacked assistant. And this film's depiction of Frankenstein's monster has pretty much become iconic. If you see a picture, a drawing, whatever, of Frankenstein's monster, it's going to look pretty much like Boris Karloff. And in 1991, the United States Library of Congress selected Frankenstein for preservation in the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I think it's all of those. Uh, The plot, of course, we all know it. Frankenstein gets obsessed with creating life in the laboratory, goes a little cuckoo in the head, and does it. Except that his trusted servant and hunchbacked assistant, who in this movie is called Fritz, and we'll get on to the idea of an Igor later on in this little chat, um, Fritz accidentally damages the good brain, so he brings Henry the corrupt brain. And that's where everything goes, right down the shitter, folks. The monster goes bad, people die, villagers rise up, All sorts of bad stuff goes on. And in the end, the monster is dead. Or is it? And this movie, I remember seeing this movie when I was very small. I don't know, maybe five years old, maybe younger than that. And of course, I saw it a couple more times after that. I did not read the novel Frankenstein until I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And when I did, I was amazed that the book was so much different than the movie. And those of you who have read the novel and seen the movie understand this. In the novel, 
the creature educates itself. It wants nothing other than to be left alone. Uh, stuff like that. You know, it's it's completely different monster. He's not this big mindless killing machine. But they changed it in the movies, and that's the Frankenstein, and the Frankenstein's monster we all know. So anyway, going to the cast and the characters, we have Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, a mad scientist who creates the monster and is engaged to Elizabeth. We have Mae Clark as Elizabeth Lavenza, Henry's fiancée, who tries to find out about his experiments. We have John Bowles as Victor Moritz, Henry's friend, who along with Elizabeth and Dr. Waldman, is also trying to find out about these experiments. We have Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. Henry's creation, who wreaks havoc on the village. We have Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman, Henry's former college professor, who is investigating the experiments. We have Dwight Fry as Fritz, Henry's assistant, who also abuses the monster and makes him afraid of fire and such. And by the way, growing up as a little kid, watching him abuse that monster, I was hoping every time that the monster would kill him. And we have Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein, Henry's father, who is also suspicious about him. Pretty much everybody's suspicious about Henry, and with good reason, of course. We have Lionel Belmore as Herr Vogel, the burgomaster of the village, who plans Henry and Elizabeth's wedding, not knowing that the monster is going to interrupt things. We have Marilyn Harris as Maria, the little girl who befriends the monster, and, well, we all know what happens to her. And we have Michael Mark as Ludwig, Maria's father, who creates a town mob to kill the monster at the end of the film. Now, as far as the production of the movie goes, in 1930, Universal Studios had lost $2.2 million in revenue. Now, think about that in 1930 dollars. That was a shitload of money. Within 48 hours of its opening at New York's Roxy Theater on February 12, 1931, Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, had sold 50,000 tickets, building a momentum that culminated in a $700,000 profit, the largest of Universal's 1931 releases. As a result, the head of production, Carl Lamel Jr., announced immediate plans for more horror films, because he wasn't a dummy. And as part of that plan, he went and bought the rights to the stage play, and that pretty much gave him a lock on the Frankenstein character. Now, immediately following the success of Dracula, Bela Lugosi had hoped to play Henry Frankenstein in Universal's original film concept. However, the actor was expected by producer Carl Lamel Jr. to play the monster, not the doctor. It was a common move for contract players in film studios at the time to keep his famous name on the bill. And although this is often regarded as one of the worst decisions of any actor's career, in actuality, the part that Lugosi was offered was not the same character that Karloff eventually played. The initial director was Robert Flory, who had recharacterized the monster as a simple killing machine, without a touch of human interest or pathos, unlike in the original Shelley novel, where he had plenty of both. This reportedly caused Lugosi to complain, I was a star in my country, and I will not be a scarecrow over here. Flory later wrote that the Hungarian actor didn't show himself very enthusiastic for the role and didn't want to play it. Well, that's one way to interpret it. What I gather is that Lugosi was pretty pissed off about it. However, 
the decision may not have been Lugosi's in any case, since recent evidence suggested it was kicked off the project, along with Director Flory, when the newly arrived James Whale asked for the property and later cast Karloff, who actually resembled Whale somewhat. Another smart idea they had when making this movie was to get Kenneth Strickfadden to design the electrical effects that were used in the creation scene, where they put the monster on a slab, electrify him, and bring him to life. They were so successful that such effects came to be considered an essential part of every subsequent universal film involving Frankenstein's monster. Accordingly, the equipment used to produce them has come to be referred to in fan circles as Strickfadden's. It appears that Strickfadden managed to secure the use of at least one Tesla coil built by the inventor Nikola Tesla himself. Well, that's pretty fucking cool. The film opened in New York City at the Mayfair Theater on December 4, 1931 and grossed $53,000 in one week. So, yeah, big hit. Flory and Lugosi were given Murders in the Rue Morgue to film as a consolation. Lugosi would later go on to play Frankenstein's monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman a decade later, when his career was in decline. In the original shooting script, the monster spoke, canceling Lugosi's initial objection to the part. But his filmed dialogue sequences were cut prior to release, along with the premise that the monster was blind, which was the way Lugosi had played it. And if you watch that movie, it is kind of strange the way the monster moves around. So, now we know why. Now, this was a pre-code movie, so there were things in it that uh, maybe didn't go down so well later on when the code did kick in. And one of those was the scene with the little girl, Maria, who gets thrown into the lake and accidentally drowns uh, because the monster doesn't know any better. They're, They're throwing flower petals, and when you run out of petals... He pitches her in the lake, and that's all she wrote. Um, the states of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and New York uh, didn't like that. So that part of the scene was cut. Those three states also objected to a line they considered blasphemous that occurred during Frankenstein's exuberance when he first learns that his creature is alive. The original relevant passage was Victor saying, Henry, in the name of God! And Henry saying, In the name of God? Now I know what it feels like to be God. And that was out. That was completely out, not only in those three states, but I'm pretty sure in most other states. The state of Kansas requested the cutting of 32 scenes, which, if they had been removed, would have cut the film literally in half. And Jason Joy of the Studio Relations Committee sent censor representative George Breen to urge them to reconsider. Eventually, an edited version was released in Kansas because in 1931, Kansas was even more of a fucking hick state than it is now, and it's pretty bad now. As with many pre-code films that were reissued after strict enforcement of the production code in 1934, Universal made cuts from the original camera negative, and thus the cut footage are often lost. However, the footage of the girl Maria being thrown into the lake was rediscovered during the 1980s in the collection of the British National Film Archive, and it has since been reincorporated into modern copies of the film. In the Irish Free State, 
The film was banned on February 5, 1932, for being demoralizing and unsuitable for children or nervous people. And age-restricted certificates were not introduced in the country until 1965. The decision was overturned by the Appeals Board on March 18, 1932, and the film was passed uncut on March 9. The film was successfully banned in Northern Ireland, Quebec, Sweden, Italy, and Czechoslovakia. Because, who the fuck knows, probably the Catholic Church had something to do with that. Now, as far as reviews of the movie go, the New York Times film critic Mordant Hall gave Frankenstein a very positive review. He said that the film aroused so much excitement at the Mayfair that many in the audience laughed to cover up their true feelings. There is no denying that it is far and away the most effective thing of its kind. Beside it, Dracula is tame, and incidentally, Dracula was produced by the same firm. So, he liked it. Several other people liked it. Uh, they called it gruesome, chill-producing, and exciting drama. And it was produced intelligently and lavishly, and with a grade of photography that is superb. Variety, whose good side you want to stay on if you're making movies, reported that it looks like Dracula Plus, touching a new peak in horror plays, and described Karloff's performance as a fascinating acting bit of mesmerism. Its review also singled out the look of the film as uniquely praiseworthy, calling the photography splendid and the lighting the last word in ingenuity, since much of the film calls for dim or night effects and manipulation of shadows to intensify the ghostly atmosphere. So, is pretty highly thought of by most critics. There were a few that didn't like it so much. Um, one other thing, the film was banned in China due to falling under the category of superstitious films as a result of its strangeness and unscientific elements. And Frankenstein has continued to receive acclaim from critics and is widely regarded as one of the best films of 1931 and one of the greatest movies of all time. It holds a 100% certified fresh rating on the review aggregate website Rotten Tomatoes if you give a fuck about what Rotten Tomatoes says about anything anymore. Because, you know, people get in there and they slam films and adjust the ratings and all that sort of thing. Um, Frankenstein also received recognition from the American Film Institute. It was named the 87th greatest movie of all time on 100 Years, 100 Movies. The line, It's Alive, It's Alive, was ranked as the 49th greatest movie quote in American cinema. The film was on the ballot for several of AFI's 100 series lists, including the top 10 for sci-fi category, 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition, and twice on 100 Years, 100 Years of Heroes and Villains for both Henry Frankenstein and the Monster, both in the Villains category. Um, so that's, you know, still a highly rated movie, still a highly regarded movie. Now, as far as its box office went, the film was a commercial success. In June of 1932, so, you know, roughly, what, six, seven months after it came out, the film had earned a reported rental of 1.4 million bucks. That's a big chunk of change in 1932. In 1943, Universal reported it had earned a profit of $708,871 off of that movie. 
So, that's pretty good. And by 1953, all of the Frankenstein re-releases earned an estimated profit of 12 million bucks. And that's pretty darn good, too, in 1953. As far as releases on home media go, it's out there. You can rent it in any number of ways. It's in collections. It's by itself. They show it on American Movie Classics. Uh, It's all over the place. So you have no trouble getting it or really any of the Universal Monster movies. Now, when it comes to things like sequels, there were a lot of them. Frankenstein was followed by a string of sequels, beginning with The Bride of Frankenstein, which is, in most people's opinion, even better than the original movie. And you had Elsa Lanchester playing not only the monster's bride, but she does the little bit at the beginning where she plays Mary Shelley and introduces what happened really after the monster looked like he died. Then the next sequel, Son of Frankenstein, which wasn't quite as good, was made. And like those that followed, it was made without James Whale or Colin Clive. And that's mostly because Clive died in 1937, so he wasn't around. This film featured Karloff's last performance as the monster. Uh, He did it in Bride, and he did it in this one. So he played him three times in the movies there. And Son of Frankenstein presented Basil Rathbone as Baron Wolf von Frankenstein, Bela Lugosi as the bearded hunchback Igor, so now he's Igor, not Fritz, and Lionel Atwill as Inspector Crow. Then we have Ghost of Frankenstein, released in 1942, which had Lon Chaney Jr. as the monster taking over for Boris Karloff, and Bela Lugosi in his second appearance as the demented Igor. The fifth installment, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, was released in 1943, directed by Roy William Neal, starred Bela Lugosi as the Frankenstein's monster, and this was also a sequel to The Wolfman, with Lon Chaney Jr. returning as the Wolfman, which is why he didn't play the monster. In the follow-up, House of Frankenstein, Karloff returned to the series, but not as the monster, but this time as a mad doctor. The monster this time was portrayed by Glenn Strange. And here's a little factoid for you. Glenn Strange portrayed him in a few other movies. And his look of the monster is actually the one they used for a lot of posters for the original Frankenstein upon its re-releases and such like that. And also, if you were like me, a kid who bought those Universal Monster model kits and put them together... The monster you see in the Frankenstein model kit, that face was modeled on Glenn Strange, not Boris Karloff. And also in House of Frankenstein, you had Von Cheney Jr. returning as a wolfman, and Dracula, who is in this film a very short period of time, and played by John Carradine, who does a good Dracula, by the way. The sequel to House of Frankenstein was House of Dracula. And it features the same three monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, Monster, Wolfman, with the same cast in their portrayals. Now, many, many subsequent Frankenstein monsters movie demote the creature to an almost robotic henchman in somebody else's plot, such as the final Universal film appearance in the deliberately farcical Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein, 
and he was pretty much just a mindless killing machine in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Now, though it is unrelated to the Universal series, the later Frankenstein 1970, which was not made in 1970, it was made way before that, it has the scientist Frankenstein, played by Boris Karloff, animating his monster using nuclear energy. So, getting right up there with the modern times. Now, there's one other time when Boris Karloff put on the makeup and appeared as Frankenstein's monster, and that was for a 1962 episode of the television show Route 66. And I dimly remember seeing that episode, and I really need to dig it out and, you know, from YouTube or wherever and watch it again. Now, as far as other adaptations go of the Frankenstein monster, well, you've got the Munsters, in which Herman Munster is a Frankenstein monster, married to Count Dracula's daughter, and they have a werewolf for a son. And the makeup for him was based on Boris Karloff. You have Frankenstein appearing in Mad Monster Party, which is a Rankin-Bass production Halloween special, which I believe used stop-motion puppets or something, where Dr. Boris von Frankenstein, voiced by Boris Karloff, invites various classic monsters to a reunion at his castle with the intention of announcing his retirement and to name his successor. You have, of course, the most famous adaptation, and the best, with Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. And I will go on record, climb up on the hill to die there, and tell you that Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles were the two funniest and best films that Mel Brooks ever made, and they were two of the funniest and best films anybody has ever made, and they were probably the two best parody films ever made. They are just excellent. And Young Frankenstein used the original props built for the 1935 film which were provided to Mel Brooks by their designer, Ken Strickvadden. So that's great. And Brooks also recreated the movie as a 2007 modern Broadway musical of the same name. Uh, there have just been tons and tons of adaptations. Jeez. Uh, Hammer did tons and tons of Frankenstein movies. Uh, some had uh, Christopher Lee as the monster... Some didn't. Uh, many of them, in fact, I think all of them, had uh, Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein. And now we get on to a little piece here about Igor. Although Frankenstein's hunchbacked assistant is often referred to as Igor in description of the film, he is not called that in the earliest films. In both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein has an assistant who is played both times by Dwight Fry. And his assistant is disabled. He's got a hunchback. He's got a bum leg, whatever. And in the original film, he was Fritz. And he walks with the aid of a small cane. And Fritz was nowhere in the original Frankenstein novel. And he actually originated from the earliest recorded play adaptation, Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein where he was portrayed by Robert Keeley. Now, in Bride of Frankenstein, Fry plays Carl, a murderer who stands upright 
but has a lumbering metal brace on both legs that can be heard clicking loudly with every step. Both characters would be killed off by Frankenstein's monster in their respective films. And like I said, as a kid, yes, I loved that part. Kill that evil son of a bitch. Fry also appeared in later films in a series such as Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. It was not until Son of Frankenstein, the third movie, that a character called Igor first appears, and he is played by Bela Lugosi. And Igor was a deranged blacksmith whose neck was broken and twisted due to a botched hanging. That's got to suck. And he befriends the monster and later helps Dr. Wolf Frankenstein, leading to the hunchback assistant called Igor, commonly associated with Frankenstein in popular culture. I'll also note here that the film's director, Roland V. Lee, uh, said that his crew and him let uh, Lugosi work on the characterizations and do it the way he wanted to. And he thinks that when they were finished, that Lugosi gave an excellent performance as Igor. And I tend to think he did too. I think he was a much more interesting character than... uh, Dwight Fry, although Dwight Fry played a miserable little son of a bitch pretty darn well. So what I haven't mentioned here, because it's not in the Wikipedia article, and it could be, but it would make the article twice as long, is that there have been dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds, of movies based on the Frankenstein monster and the creator, based on parts of it, uh, not based on the book at all. Some were barely based on the movie. Uh, There have been at least two or three television versions made in America that I remember seeing. One was a miniseries many, many years ago. Um, They're just all over the place. Frankenstein is just right there in the psyche of not just Americans, but everybody, everybody that's seen that movie, everywhere that movie is played, people know about Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is, is in their heads. It's in the culture. It's in the, the legends. When we think of Frankenstein, nobody thinks of the novel version. Everybody thinks of the movie version, the Boris Karloff version. Just like everybody thinks of Dracula as Bela Lugosi. So... This is a movie that, like I've said about these movies, just is iconic. It transcends, you know, a lot of other later versions of the movie, even the ones that were more faithful to the novel, and several have been. So, folks, that's Frankenstein, and I hope you enjoyed this. It's gone on for over half an hour, and next time... We look at another movie with Boris Karloff in it, The Mummy. And we are back again with RPG prompts. And this time we have three interesting ones. They are Power, Triumph, and Release. So we'll start with Power, and Power is a big thing in many, many games. It certainly is in traditional D&D, where everybody's trying to increase their power. It's the way things get done in a lot of games, most of the fantasy games. It's the power of the sword, the power of magic, 
the power of good over evil or vice versa. The standard superhero game is all about power. You have powers beyond those of mortal men or women. Power is what everybody's trying to acquire, both in the real world and in fantasy games and other role-playing games. So power is out there, and do you lust after it? Do you oppose it? Do your characters find ways to utilize it to do both? Up their own power and oppose the powers that be? That happens a lot. In modern games, power itself can be a tangible thing that you are trying to deal with, acquire, sell, buy, whatever. Because you may have electric power. You may have... uh, power from winds or whatever. You may have the power of a weapon and you're trying to do things with that. You could have new sources of power. You may have found a way to create um, nuclear fusion. You know, it's always been 10, 20, 30 years away for most of my life. So I'm not counting on seeing it before I die. But uh, maybe your characters have found somebody who's got nuclear fusion up and working. Maybe you found somebody who has made it and they're using the power to do bad stuff. Maybe your characters themselves created it. Maybe they stole it from an alien. Who knows? But they have this power and they're wanting to do something with it. You could also have, of course, the bad guys have some power that nobody's seen before, and they're using it to stir up shit. So you've got to stop them. You know, the supervillain has the ability to control the weather, and that's a power that's fucking things up. You have the bad criminal mastermind who's got a power to blast things with a ray and they explode, or they melt, or they disappear, or whatever. Um... A lot of ways you can play around with power. A lot of ways you can have power. You can take power away from either your characters or you can have your characters take power away from something that's very powerful. Maybe your characters are in a position where there's a big bomb that's going to go off and they've got a way to channel the power from the blast area, reduce the blast area down, like, oh, it's an atomic bomb. Instead of having miles and miles of destruction, they can get it down to 50 feet. But then they've got to channel that power somewhere else, through a wormhole or something like that. And they've got to choose where that power goes. So maybe they just blast it off into space and it hits a passing Klingon ship or something and then all hell breaks loose. Or maybe they actually have to give their lives to stop this power. So power is there. Power has a lot of forms. Power is a big motivator for almost everything that's done by anybody. So that's things you can do with power. Give them a shot. Now we have triumph. And triumph comes in a lot of flavors in games. It comes at the end of a well-run well-played, well-written, well-thought-out session. 
or campaign when everything's gone right and you've accomplished the goals and you're back in town and you've got the magic or you've got the weapons or you've saved humanity once more or you've stopped communism or whatever it is you've done, you're feeling triumphant about it. And the players will feel that way. The characters will certainly feel that way. And you, the GM, will probably feel that way. You're like, damn, I ran a good game. And, you know, pat yourself on the back for it. It's triumph. You've, you've been triumphant. Now, also in games, when your characters are triumphant, especially over something really big, they should get recognition from the public if that's possible. Now, if they're secret agents or superheroes who are working undercover or something, yeah, maybe the cops or the military or the politicians or somebody take the uh, the triumph as their own and say, yeah, yeah, we did this. I want to thank our wonderful military for blah, 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 when in fact the military couldn't do a damn thing without Power Man and the Revengers, you know, getting in there and stopping things. But you could have it where, hey, you know, these superheroes destroyed that great big kaiju that was coming to smash Los Angeles. Let's have a ticker tape parade. Let's, you know, they won't be able to pay any money in a bar. Everybody be buying them drinks. Women, men, whatever will be throwing themselves at their feet, you know. Have that happen. Give your players and your characters moments of triumph and and praise them for it. You know, if you're a GM, tell them, hey, y'all did really fucking great, you know. Beer's on me. So, yeah, that's that's triumph. That's something we should celebrate and something we should have in our games. Our final prompt here is release. Release in most games will mean getting out of something. Could be getting out of a contract. Could be getting out of jail. Could be getting out of a dungeon or an evil mastermind's lair or a space station is getting ready to enter the atmosphere and burn up. It could be getting out of some other dimension. It could be, depending on the game you're playing, it could be getting out of a bad marriage. That's, believe me, a very nice thing to do. Um, so release is also something you can do for somebody. It's not just you getting out of prison. You maybe went into prison on purpose to help somebody else get out. You maybe released a creature that had been chained up for centuries to protect some evil bastard's dungeon or lair or whatever. So when you get into this place and you see this poor creature that's been chained up and he's magically fed or watered once a day and could be even in his own filth for all you know. Maybe it touches your character's hearts and they say, you know what, fuck this. Let's turn this thing loose. Let's protect ourselves and then let's turn loose this creature and see if it still protects things or if it runs off. And at that point, if you're a decent DM, you'll say, you know, this poor bastard was chained up and it wants to get loose and when they release it, it's going to haul ass out of here. Or maybe if it's even the slightest bit intelligent, like say as intelligent as a dog or a cat, they release it and it realizes, hey, these people are not here to hurt me. These people are here to do something that I don't give a rat's ass about because I hate this place. 
And you know what? I'm going to protect them while they're doing it. So now they've got this creature or person. It could be a person. Um, whatever it is, aside from maybe the undead, it is either going to run off and get the hell out of there or it's going to help them. Uh, you could also have it just go completely nuts and try to kill them, and that's a possibility too. But I would go with you know, one of the first two options. Another sort of release is where you find out information and you release it to the public. This could be done in modern games to discredit politicians, uh, bring down corporations, start a revolution, end a war, uh, just get some asshole out of your face. There's all these things you can do by releasing information in the modern world. And, amazingly enough, it carries through to pretty much any setting that you're going to have human beings or something like human beings involved in. Doesn't matter if it's the Old West, Pulp, Elizabethan England, Ancient Rome, the 24th century, fantasy of any stripe, superhero game. If you release information about bad guys, good guys, whoever, it's going to have serious repercussions depending on how bad the information was. So that's something you can do. That can spur a whole campaign. Is very first adventure, they find out that the guy that's employing them, this so-called benevolent millionaire who makes electric cars or some shit like that, they find out that, no, he's actually a miserable son of a bitch, and he's fucking people over, and he's screwing the poor, and, you know, he's eating babies for breakfast or something. So they release all this, and his stock plummets, and he's being investigated by about 127 different district attorneys and the feds and the world court and who else. And so he says, fuck you guys. I'm spending my last money to kill you. I'm, I'm sending people. I'm putting bounties on your heads with the little bit of money I have. And fuck you. I'm going to kill you. And they got to spend the rest of their time dodging assassins, trying to get back to this guy because now they probably got to kill him. And that's what happens when you release stuff against the powerful. They usually turn around and bite, even when they're going down and, you know, they're not going to escape prison. They're going to try and get you. So that's release, folks. It's something you should think about in games, something you can use, a lot of different ways to use it. And that's our RPG prompts for this time. We'll have more next time we do it. All right, folks, it is the end of the program. It is time for me to thank you all, and of course, I thank you very much for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Dockerverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail, and you patrons can leave a message on my Patreon page and they will send me a text about it, and it'll be easy for me to get right back to you and comment. If you would like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts really truly about two months before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross. 
If you would like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I mentioned earlier. If you would like to make a one-time donation, not sign up like patrons do, but just do a one-time donation of whatever, you can go to my Ko-fi page. That's K-O-F-I. And just look up Doc Cross 4591 And go ahead and pledge whatever you want to do. Just a one time or you can do it a couple times. Whenever you think about it, that's up to you. Our music this time was Funhouse by Coyote Hearing off of the Free Music Archives. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I hope you all have a good week. I'll see you next week. Live long and prosper.